welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Well, before we begin our little study this morning, let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Dear Father in heaven, we pray that Jesus will be represented here today as our teacher through his special representative, the Holy Spirit, and help us to know how important it is that we have a Savior who is near to us and not afar off. We pray in his name. Amen. Maybe if you could just think of yourself as uh, fleeing for your life and your only hope of escape is to get across through a traffic bottleneck at the river crossing, and that's the only place that's open where you can go across the border. And But right there is a military checkpoint, and you're passport to get through that checkpoint to avoid death is to prove your identity by speaking in an elusive dialect, something like trilling your R's to prove that you are a true Scotsman. Can you say shibboleth? Can you say shibboleth? All right. Or maybe from babyhood, have you always pronounced it sibboleth? but the true pronunciation is shibboleth. Well, at this checkpoint, you cannot fake it because your head will roll unless you can say it just right. Well, there's some 42,000 Ephraimites who fell at the Jordan River because they couldn't say the word shibboleth to satisfy the military guards. You can read about it in Judges chapter 12. Well, throughout history, there is a shibboleth that has come to be kind of a linguistic password, a way of speaking or writing that identifies one as a member of a group. And today, it has also come to mean a point of difference or division, a person whose way of speaking or believing, as evidenced by actions, violates a shibboleth and is therefore identified as an outsider and thereby excluded from the group. It's kind of like drawing a line in the sand. Is the true nature of Christ our Adventist shibboleth? Are we dividing ourselves over trifles in words, maybe anathematizing others who just can't say it right? One reporter puts it this way, congregations have parted and friends separated. Are such differences all that important? Well, this morning we're really not concerned about settling intricate word problems in a theoretical way, and we don't disfellowship anyone, and we do not pretend to be scholars or theologians or historians. All we are is just simple teachers who belong in the Bay Area where we have been sent to serve by the Lord, and we are bottom-of-the-ladder workers. We see our task as an assignment to us by the church, uh, leaders to work and minister here in the Hayward Church, and I see my responsibility as to help prepare a people for the second coming of Jesus. 
And I think that, I take that as being serious business. I take it seriously. And it's right here in the Bay Area that we have learned to view this controversy over the nature of Christ from the perspective of, of a soul-winning pastoral ministry, and we have been forced to see it as a life-and-death issue. It surely appears on the surface as though the gospel of Jesus doesn't have power to save people from their sensuality. Why does humanity find that seventh commandment? Do you know what that is? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Why do people find the seventh commandment so difficult, so difficult to obey, even when the gospel supposedly is preached? Why do so many pastors fall into adultery? There are two outstanding reasons. Number one, the popular gospel that is preached denies that Christ took our identical same fallen sinful flesh in which he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And a false gospel separates Jesus from the human race. He came to save, teaching people that he can only save us in our sins and not from our sins. If he was not tempted to sensuality, like as we are tempted, then what was read in our scripture lesson this morning says clearly that he cannot save us from sensuality. In contrast, the true gospel insists that he does save sinners from their sins and gives the complete victory over sinful temptation. The real meaning of the cross of Christ is hidden and obscured. Yes, it's even denied by the pagan doctrine of the natural immortality of the soul. And that whole idea has crept into the Christian church. It was imported in from ancient paganism. That pagan doctrine denies that Christ truly died our second death on the cross. And it leaves his glorious sacrifice in a cloud uh, restricted. It leaves it in confusion. So only a clear view of the cross, what it cost the Son of God to save us, uh, can save human beings from the deep-rooted sins of sex and sensuality, including the intemperate indulgence into appetite. People think that the personal battle is too difficult, but Jesus says this, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we have seen what his cross means, then Jesus' yoke is easy. Yes, the, power, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Well, someone says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus couldn't be tempted to selfishness, could he? We don't want to make him too human, do we? And in response, we need to note these things, that to be tempted is not the same as to sin, is it? Temptation is not sin. A thousand temptations do not equal one sin. Therefore, Jesus could in all points be tempted like as we are, yet without sin, couldn't he? Number two, Jesus did for sure become human, and we dare not limit his humanity, for John tells us that if we try to restrict his humanity and make it different from ours, then we will end up being antichrist. 
You can read about that in 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3. He was, in all points, tempted like, his, like unto his brethren. His name is Emmanuel. You know what that means, God with us. Humanity combined with divinity. Number three, further, we must remember that the humanity which Christ became himself to be or assumed was not the sinless, unfallen humanity that Adam enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. He came from heaven specifically to solve the problem of sin where it dwells in fallen, sinful human nature. So if Jesus sidestepped taking that same humanity where the problem is for all of us, he opens himself up to the charge of being unfair in the great contest of the controversy between good and evil. And who in the world would ever believe that Jesus could be dishonest as our Savior? No way. And then we must remember that temptation to indulge self was as strong for Jesus as it is for us. In fact, the temptation for Jesus to indulge self was even stronger for him than it was for us. Nobody could have been more fervently abhorred being crucified than was Jesus. Jesus didn't want to be crucified. His whole soul shrunk from the ordeal. You can listen to his words. He said, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. You think that was sweet and a little mild prayer on Jesus' part? No, because you can read on, and he was screaming. He cried out, and he was sweating actual drops of blood there in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was not an easy thing for him. Jesus' perfect likeness of his nature with yours and mine, his humanity being formed with a self just as yours is, a self which had to be denied. If he would follow his Father's will, all of this makes Jesus our perfect Savior, able to save perfectly those who come unto God by him. Are you having a battle with self? Are you? Every one of us has a battle with self. Jesus absolutely had a battle with self. Have you ever given in to self? Yes, but he did not. But the reason why he ever liveth is to give you and me forgiveness and victory over self. We hadn't been here long before we ran into perplexing problems, even discouraging problems, discipline problems with church members who were committing fornication and adultery, including uh, we observed elsewhere in our church in the region problems with leaders and teachers and pastors. And you know, this kind of thing can be a real plague, uh, a very difficult thing to manage. Isn't the Seventh-day Adventist church supposed to be the remnant one where the saints keep the commandments of God and not have these kinds of problems? Some fellow workers might come along and advise us to, to look the other way whenever these kinds of things happen. After all, here we are, we're living in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and you know this is the epicenter, don't you, of the counterculture movement, which is to live just the exact opposite 
of the Christian value system. And so some might say, well, just look the other way when these things happen within the church because you can just expect it to happen in the Bay Area. Well, without a Savior, who of us can help being what we are without a Savior? And so we began to realize that preaching the law, the law, the law, until we were as dry as the hills of Gilboa, and I'm borrowing there a phrase from Ellen White, that that wasn't the solution to sensuality, nor could we preach fear to them that if you do this, you might open yourself up to the possibility of venereal disease. Neither could we preach the fear of hellfire to them. That didn't seem to deter them from immorality. The people already lived in a saturation element of fear from birth to death. Sincere Christians who didn't want to fall just couldn't handle sexual temptations, and there wasn't much else to live for other than for sex. But shouldn't Paul's letters to the Corinthians solve these same problems? You know, we could have chosen to uh, just administer church discipline, but that would become a very dreary, uh, repetitive task like running the ambulance service at the bottom of the cliff, picking up the broken people and trying to restore them. Where was, where was the fence? Up there at the top to keep people from falling over. And pastors today, they confess, wrestling with the same frustrating problems of sensuality in their lives. While visiting by email with one recently, he confided that this same problem is what distresses him. And it is heartrending for us to have to watch innocent youth growing to their teenage years and seeing them stumble into the sexual traps that leave ugly scars on their personalities ever afterwards, even though their culture may accept these tragedies as being normal. Look into those sad faces in the media photographs and see the pain of fear and guilt The law of God speaks of the consequences of its transgression, and it brings condemnation to every man. Pagan or Christian, each has heard its voice. As human beings, they cannot avoid feeling the conviction of sin, even as they cannot understand how it comes upon them. But before I was sent here to Hayward, I had chanced upon some glad tidings, and my soul thrilled with its heartwarming presentation of a Savior from sin who can reach souls down in the lowest depths of the pit because Jesus suffered being tempted as they are tempted and yet without sin. I knew that I had found the gospel of Christ's righteousness stated there in attention-grabbing language. And so I wrestled, how could I share this message of glad tidings with my brothers and sisters. I had read far enough to grasp the point that Christ has set us free. He's delivered us from the slavery of being under sin. And he has condemned it in the likeness of his own sinful flesh, which he took. And he has rendered sin passe, It is as out of date as an ox cart is on the interstate system. And there is no excuse for anyone in the world to go on living in sin. 
if he understands and if he believes how good the good news of the gospel is, you know, Satan has been vanquished. Satan has not been merely attacked. It's too late for us to go on Satan saying, Satan made me do it, as many were telling me. The gospel is not powerless. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the dynamite of God. And so you cannot go on living for self. If you appreciate the length and the breadth and the height of the love of Christ revealed at the cross, preaching about the punishments that they must suffer for their sins didn't phase the sensual. Maybe it phased them perhaps for a week and then they got over it. But they needed something else. Preaching about the punishment that Christ suffered for their sins was much more effective. Why he had to die. That was the truth that seemed to get through to troubled hearts. I even know of non-Adventist teachers who are casting about for some gospel that can save people from their moral fall. Sometimes pastors lament publicly that brides who march down their church aisles are pregnant. And here in America, it seems that precious few can escape falling into the morass of sexual immorality, and needless to say, that leads to every other kind of corruption as well. But now we realize that this problem of sexual sin is the world's sin. One Christian, uh, one Adventist writer, Rio Christensen, writes this in Spectrum magazine. He says, fornication causes more suffering in America than theft and perjury and random violence combined. High rates of illegitimacy, single-parent families, school dropouts following pregnancies, subsequent entries onto welfare rolls, plus their children who get involved in crime, drugs, and poor educational performance, and often lifelong poverty, and think of the parental distress all of this brings to. And these up... Add these up and the reader can see why I think that fornication is an evil far greater than modern society likes to acknowledge. It is sad that even churches are unwilling to give this sin the attention it so richly deserves. Even when those who, with the know-how practice contraception or abortion, the scars upon the soul remain And the poison is the afterlife. And Jesus described this truly awful state of our contemporary world when he said, Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, he said. You know, marriages are poisoned, even if they survive, and children sense the loveless alienations. Fornication and adultery are like a neutron bomb that spiritually kills souls while leaving our glittering homes and cities standing in their material grandeur, apparently unscathed, with desolated souls dead in the midst of material wealth. And while I was struggling and praying about our problem, a key element of good news became crystal clear. The biblical truth of the nature of Christ 
is a soul-winning message. The sinless Son of God came all of the way down to where we are sunken in sin. And He took our fallen, sinful human nature, spiritual nature, and He lived therein a sinless life, enduring even our spiritual alienation from God as He cried out on His cross, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. You know, Romanism and Catholicism uh, our Protestantism in general denied this precious truth. For Romanism taught a dogma of the Immaculate Conception, the source, really, of terrible sexual immorality that says the opposite. And Protestants retained a similar idea of exemption for Christ, even as they retained the Sunday Sabbath from the Mother Church. And instead of preaching a Christ who is nigh at hand and not afar off, their Christ belongs in the stained glass window far off from reality when the dusk falls. And I began to wonder what our Seventh-day Adventist Christians thought about Jesus. I decided to ask the congregation some questions. Do you believe that Jesus in his incarnation was tempted as we are? Oh yes, oh yes, we do. Well, was he tempted to lie? Was he tempted to steal? Was he tempted to break the Sabbath? And on and on. Of course, yes, Pastor. Was he tempted to break the seventh commandment? And then came the answer. Firm, unmistakable. Oh, no, impossible. Tempted to adultery? No. And then I knew that I had found the source of the problem. There was no Savior from that sin. Their Christ was the popular one of the prominent Roman Catholic evangelist Fulton Sheen and his Protestant friends who across the gulf clasped the hand of Rome. This Christ was different from the fallen human race, being exempt from the genetic inheritance of all fallen descendants of Adam. Sheen, the Roman Catholic American evangelist, makes clear what his church teaches everywhere. Here are his words. Mary was separated from that sin-laden humanity. Had there been no immaculate conception, then Christ would have been said to be less beautiful. He would have taken his body from one who was not humanly perfect. There ought to be an infinite separation between God and sin. Continuing with Sheen's words, he says, How could Christ be sinless if he was born of sin-laden humanity? If a brush dipped in black becomes black, and if cloth takes on the color of the dye, would not he in the eyes of the world have also partaken of the guilt in which all humanity shared. If he came to this earth through the wheat field 
of moral weakness, he certainly would have some chaff hanging on the garment of his human nature. And Sheen's apparently faultless logic has appealed to a number of Seventh-day Adventist writers in recent decades. If Christ took our fallen sinful nature, how could he be sinless? And how then could he be our sinless substitute? And wouldn't he himself then need a Savior? The Bible doctrine of Christ's righteousness eluded Fulton Sheen, the Roman Catholic evangelist. He cannot see how Christ saves us from sin and not in sin because Jesus condemned sin in fallen, sinful flesh. And he outlawed it forever. There's a reason why the blood of all that were slain upon the earth is found at last in the final judgment to be in Babylon. But like Sheen, some fail to see the essential core of New Testament righteousness by faith. Christ could not be our sinless substitute unless he has bridged the awful gap of being separated from the human race and had fought and won our battle where we are. And somehow they think some complete identity with us in our temptations must compromise his sinlessness. A former editor of a, of a pastor's magazine wrote this, You can never make me believe that Christ was ever tempted to break the seventh commandment. And in response, one said, then according to the message of Hebrews, we have no Savior from that temptation. Our only hope is to have a permanent ambulance station at the bottom of that cliff. To multitudes of sin-sick souls, the Roman Catholic Christ, it brings no good news. He had not suffered being tempted as they are. He cannot be touched with the feeling of their weaknesses, and therefore he cannot give them aid when they are tempted, for he was not in all points tempted like as they are, and all he can do is keep on pardoning their continued unavoidable sinning. And I finally realized that my friends desperately needed a glimpse of the true Christ, the true Christ. Let's not kid ourselves into thinking that this is only our Bay Area problem. This is America's problem, and this is the world's problem as well. And they need to know about the true Christ. A copy of The Consecrated Way to Christian Perfection, I read that, and it presents a heartwarming message from Hebrews on these verses we're discussing. Only in that wherein Christ himself hath suffered being tempted is he able to aid them that are tempted? We have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, whether moral, not merely tiredness from physical labor, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And I sense that the common idea of justification by faith just didn't fly. Justification by faith is not merely a declaration of acquittal. It is that 
but that's what all Christians think it is exclusively. But wonderful as that may be, Rome taught that all they had to do was to keep on confessing their moral falls and get a pardon and then get right back on living and giving into the flesh again and again and again. And isn't Jesus so sweet and kind and merciful? All we do is partake of the Mass and we get forgiven and we can go back out and do it all over again. And you know, even Muslims are saying that Allah is compassionate and God knows it's impossible that we cannot keep from sinning. Not if you're human, we're all human. And about that time, I discovered the wonderful idea of agape, God's love. And I began to fall in love with the glory of the cross of Christ. And then I saw in the heartwarming story of Mary Magdalene, I saw her as a patron saint for us. God knows your temptations even that of breaking the seventh commandment, and he aids you and lifts you out of that swamp if you understand and believe the gospel is good news. Look at the grand dimensions of agape that led the Son of God to go to hell to save you, to die your second death, not just suffer physical death, to endure being cursed of God as he was hanged on a tree, And your lust of the flesh and the lust of your eyes and the pride of life, if you look at Jesus, those desires will no longer enslave you. The story of Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, defines for you what faith is all about. It's a heart appreciation of Christ's love for you. This is not another works trip. No, sir. Justification by faith, therefore, is more than a legal pardon or acquittal that frees you to go on sinning over and over and over again. Justification by faith actually delivers you practically and genuinely from that bondage to sin. The curse of the law is not disobedience, is not obedience to the law. The curse of the law is not obedience to the law. It's disobedience to it. The curse of the law is disobedience to the law. You know what? You're saved from disobedience to the law to obedience to the law by faith in Christ. Justification by faith is an experience that actually makes you become obedient to all of the commandments of God. It's the greatest joy that a human being can know. It transcends every other pleasure. Does the gospel work? Did the preaching of the cross work? You know, I didn't accomplish anything, but the gospel did it. For it is indeed the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. I found that my brethren are as capable of truly believing as anyone on earth and as capable of manifesting the fruit of such faith which works by love. We, as Christians, are no better by nature than anybody else on the face of the earth. But the Lord has given to us a most precious message. And it is to be proclaimed to earth's billions who are suffering under the bondage and enslavement of sin. And we'd be foolish not to recognize that 
the nature of Christ is a life and death issue. Last night I watched a very uh, moving uh, video put together by Terry Benedict on the life of Desmond Doss. I don't know if you've ever heard of Desmond Doss, but he's a Seventh-day Adventist Christian in the Carolinas. And that during the time of the Second World War, um, he wanted to serve his country, but he did not want to carry a gun. He never wanted to be put in a position where he would take the life of another fellow human being, not even the so-called enemy. And so he said, I want to enlist, I want to put my life on the line in the service of my country, and I want to be a conscientious cooperator. But there was no such category. There was only a category of being a conscientious objector. And that's negative. And he didn't want to be negative. He wanted to be positive. He said, I'll serve my country as a medic. I'll put my life on the line. If there's somebody out there who's wounded and, and the shrapnel and the shells are flying, I'll go out there and I'll pull them back to safety. I'll risk my life for the life of others. I'll even risk my life for the wounded enemy. Because all of life is precious in God's eyes, I want to be a conscientious cooperator with my country. I never thought that a docudrama could be so emotional. I was riding on one emotion to the next, listening to this. The man is such a humble man. And he, all he could talk about was his love for Jesus and his desire to keep the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, as well as the fourth commandment. And you know, he was tested on that severely. In his training from the Carolinas to California in the desert training and back into Pennsylvania, he had superiors who were constantly telling him that he ought to get out of the service and that they would not have him by their side unless he carried an arm and uh, they tried every way possible through the superior officers to get him put out. And you know what? They couldn't do it because they wanted to put him out on the basis of his religion. And you can't put a guy out of the service on the basis of their religion. That would be discrimination, right, MG? <laughs> and so he stayed. You know, who of us under that, op most of us would have said, hey, this is my out, you know. I don't have to go over there to... to uh, Guam and Okinawa, you know, uh, I can stay home, free, not Desmond Dawes. He wanted to be a conscientious cooperator and save life. And he did. He was shipped out to Guam. He saw horrible atrocities taking place among the, uh, among the villagers there. War is hell. It is an invention of the devil. Strife. And then he was later sent up there to the prime battlefield of Okinawa, which I think is the southern tip of Japan. And there on the very southern end of that island was Heartbreak Ridge, which the enemy had all kinds of positions up there. And uh, it was the key to the whole place to get that. And it took many, 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 many days 
uh, and many, uh, what, over 100,000 Japanese were slaughtered in that vicinity, and 15,000 American soldiers lost their life in those wars of trying to gain that ridge. And on one particular occasion, Desmond Doss found himself the surviving medic on the top of that ridge with, with uh, tens of uh, his fallen comrades. And when some of his commanding officers were running away from the fire, Desmond Doss went into it. And he had grabbed them by the scruff of their neck and pulled them over to the escarpment and get them into a sling and lower them down to where the help was. And his constant prayer was, Lord, help me to get one more. And he'd go back and he'd get one more and bring them back and lower them down. Lord, help me to get one more. And for 12 hours, the Lord helped him to get one more. One more. I'll tell you, when one appreciates how much Jesus has done to save you from bondage to sin, there's no end to what faith will do in working out itself in love for fellow human beings. Here was a man who followed Jesus. His conscience would not allow him to bear an arm and take the life of another. His conscience only directed him to save life. And the Lord saved his life. There were many times when the enemy had him within his sights, in his rifle sights. And then, just as he was ready to pull the trigger, the, the, the rifle would jam. On several occasions, this was the testimony of the enemy soldier himself. I had Doss in my sights. And the gun jammed repeatedly. Twelve hours. Later on, after the Heartbreak Ridge had been conquered, in subsequent battles, Doss was wounded. Multiple wounds of shrapnel and, and uh, broken bones, and he lost his hearing as a result. And that was finally his ticket home. They sent him home on the ship Mercy, a hospital ship. He was, he was awarded, I forget what the official medal was. It was even higher than the purple and the gold star. Congressional Medal of Honor by President Truman himself. And there's footage of him shaking President Truman's hand. And President Truman said, this is a higher honor than even being President of the United States. And the man, despite all of the hero worship, and by the way, all of his fellow soldiers who initially were so dead set against him, they flipped in terms of their attitude toward Desmond, and there was at least a dozen of them in this video who bore witness that it was certainly the Sabbath religion that caused this man to be as steadfast as he was. There's no way that you can go out and face the fears of the onslaught of the enemy without Jesus in your heart. And there wasn't any fear in Desmond Doss's heart. And he kept humble to the very end of his life. Dear friends, there's a great crisis facing us. There are great temptations that are facing you and me from day to day. And we have a Savior who is near to us and not afar off. 
and who can give us aid in time of need. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.